ladies and gentlemen, we are back at Real Deal Talk, and we have an amazing guest today, Leanne Yarber. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something here. Leanne <clears throat> came into my life very, very recently. What are we talking about here? Maybe a, maybe a month or two at yeah. the most? Yeah, about a month ago. About a month ago. And you guys know how I'm doing it now. Like some, some, some people are scheduled ahead of time, but most of the people now I'm, I'm kind of letting it fly. And if, if, uh, God highlights someone to me on the fly, I'm like, they're coming in. So Leanne was, um, on stage at Awakened Church about a month ago, give or take sharing her incredible story. And I'm just going to plant the seed early. So you stick around because this story is absolutely un it's actually unreal to me like because looking look at her she's a specimen of a woman you would think she's in her low 30s and i'm going to say this because of how incredible you look she's 59 almost 60 years old take a look if you're if you're listening to this you're going to want to put on the, the youtube one so you can see the video because she's extraordinary she's amazing so you would never think in a million years that this incredible woman struggled very badly with addiction Right. Yeah. And that's what highlighted to me. It's like, whoa, look at her. You would never know. You would never know. And that's the ones I really want to highlight because they're going to, the, the story is going to be that much more powerful. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> 59 looks like she's 29. And, uh, and I, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to get her on the show. I got to get her number. I, I never had met her before. Um, and then the following week I go to the El Cajon campus for the first time ever. And the reason why is because my guy Rex Crane was, uh, throwing down at, at El Cajon. So my buddy, uh, uh, Jonathan and I, Jonathan and I said, let's go to El Cajon to follow Rex. Let's go, let's go watch him throw down one more time. And so I'm there and I turn the corner and I think it was either after the, I don't remember if it was before or after the service. And I literally run right into you. Yeah. After, after the service. Yeah. After the service, I uh -huh. run right in. I'm like, are you <laughs> kidding me? So then I knew it was meant to be. I said, that's it. You're coming on the show. I don't remember if I gave you a card and said, here's my podcast. I said, what did, what did you think at that point? Who's this meathead? I'm like, what is this guy? No, I think, did, I thought maybe you had approached me before. Oh yeah. I was it at the so. conference? I think it was at the conference. Yeah. It was. Okay. And then and then you gave me your card. So no, okay. I didn't think you were. No, I don't. There's not very many people at church that I think are strange. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So so Leanne, let's get down here. Okay. Let's get down to business. Um, I want to go back. Um, uh, you know, you probably haven't seen much of my podcast, if anything at all. But I like to go back, kind of kind of find out the grassroots of your family life and yeah. how it went there, and to see if like. Basically, uh, you know, see if uh, what kind of childhood you had and stuff like that. So, where yeah. were you born and raised? So, I was born in Orange County. Okay, I was born here in SoCal. Um, my mother is an immigrant from the Philippines. Oh, so really? I can thank my mother for yeah. the great youthful skin that we have. Yes. So thank God for her. Um, my father was a Marine Corps pilot. Oh, so wow. I met in the Philippines, and then they, they, you know, they had me when I was, <laughs> they had me when I was a baby. Yeah. But they had me. <laughs> <laughs> they had me back in 1963, so my mom was brought over here. And um, my parents were married for about um, three, three and a half years. Um, I was born, then my sister was born two years later, and then my father um, left, my mom. And uh, we were left in, in, in Orange County at the time. And uh, I remember the day my dad left. Yeah. I remember that day vividly. I was two really? and a half years old. My, my you sister. You remember that age? I remember that day vividly. To this day, yeah, 50 plus years later, I remember wow. that day, yeah. And so I, th I think a lot of that has to do, and the reason why I bring that up yes. is because I think 
some of the tragedies and, and, and experiences that you have as a kid are are the reasons why we some of us go go through some of the things that we go through. You know, everybody's trauma is different. So for, for me, I remember that day vividly, and my sister was just a baby at the time. But um, so my mom was was left to raise you know two girls on her own um, in the in the United States, and she'd only been here for a few years. Um, we lived in Coronado, so my mom got a job on on the base, and she worked as um, um, a um, uh, what do you call it? Like someone who's she's a civilian. She's a civilian, yeah. but worked on base. Right. So she, we weren't Navy. Yep. Um, but even though my father was in the Marines, um, my um, we we didn't get any of those those benefits or whatever. But um, my dad ended up flying for Continental Airlines. He was an airline pilot for years. Ended up marrying five times. My mom never remarried. Yeah, so we we grew up in Coronado, um, and you know it was a great life. You know, my mom did the best that she possibly could yep. with two <coughs> girls on her own. Um, she was very strict, but Tiger yeah, mom. that's. Yep, yep. She, she was she was very strict. Uh, and and between myself and, and my sister, we were you know obviously that's we just had each other, and I you know I was kind of the black sheep. I was always getting in trouble. I was extremely rebellious. I was um, yeah, I was a little bit of a troublemaker. And so yeah. go go back though. Give me give me the how do you like what do you remember when he left? What exactly memory do you have there? I remember the color of the carpet. I remember where the fireplace was, the front door, and how I ran out in the street to go find my dad. And I remember watching his car drive around the drive around the corner. I was extremely close to my father. And even after my father left, he was, he, he did always send child support. He was really good about that. He always came and, and, and on every birthday for Christmas, he was there for every holiday. So he was in our lives a yeah. lot, but there's something to be said about fatherless daughters. Mm. And even as much effort as he made to see us when he could, he was still not really part of my life, but I always had loved him and admired him from afar. I always felt like, you know, but there's something that happens. There's a connection that happens between fathers and daughters that I never got to really experience. You know, I'll get emotional because, um, he passed away two years ago. Um, my dad, my dad ended up moving out here to California. He lived in Texas. So when we were kids, as kids, we always uh, would go visit my dad in the summertime and at Christmas time in Texas. So, and then when I turned 18 years old, because I was getting in so much trouble at the time and with drugs and alcohol and all this stuff, my father decided to move me to Texas, like, you know, making a geographical change location would would change me um obviously it didn't um I just brought my problems with me to Texas but um so you know I was I was able to get a little bit closer to my father at that time but um there is something to be said about girls that don't get to have a father present you know and you can be um you can be a, a father to a daughter and maybe not even live in the same household, but be a present father. And you could be living in the same household and not be a present mm, father. That's so true. There's something that's really important that, that, that I was missing. And that's one of the things that I always realized and it was always lacking in my, in my relationship with my parents, you know, obviously we need mom, we need dad and dad just never was present. So I was always searching for that, that, um, that, being being valued or being looked at as as someone that was appreciated by a male figure. Yeah. So I was always looking for that my whole life. 
And so how did you know that he was, did, like you said, you remember when he left, but did, did they make an announcement? Hey, dad's leaving. Like, how did you even know he was leaving? I just knew. Really? I just knew. My mother was crying. And um, I want to say, I remember her saying, you know, your dad's leaving, and which is why I ran outside the front door. But I just remember that. It's just really impactful in my life to remember such a traumatic, you know, yeah. time of my life. But I, I just remember how emotional my mom was. And I knew that something was wrong. So I just knew that he was leaving. And so he didn't actually say, all right, bye. No, no, he never said goodbye to us. He just took off in the, in the car. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. And then, like, after that point, did he call? Well, I mean, you're two and a half. You're obviously no, not really talking at that point because you're so young. So, yeah. What age do you remember talking I, to him on the phone and realizing that he... It was It was probably a few years after that that we didn't even really get to see my dad until maybe I was maybe three or four you know, yeah. and uh, we would go, we went to visit him. He was stationed in Los Angeles um, at the time. And so we, I, we got to go and stay with him and his new wife. Yeah. And um, I just remember that it was, I, I felt like a long period of time, but honestly, I think it might've been maybe a year or two years yeah. before we were finally, you know, in, in his life. And, and he, he made a point, you know, I didn't know this at the time, obviously. These are, these are things that were told to me later. He was always someone that, you know, sent money, helped my mom, um, you know, take care of us. But um, so he was trying to be present in our lives with finances and, you know, showing up on special days and things like that. But, you know, still was, you know, missing that dynamic of having mom and dad in the house. And, and do you remember your mother? Did she... To any date any more men at that point or it took a long time for my mom to to date and I remember it wasn't until I was maybe in like elementary school mm. that my mom did start dating a few she dated a few people and then uh, nothing serious she just my mother always still loved my father uh, even to this day wow and yeah as a matter of fact when he passed away the day that he the night that he passed away my sister and I were gonna call and tell my mom and I said, let's wait. So the next day, my sister went to tell my mom that my dad passed away. And before she approached my mom, my mom said, Rolf died last night, didn't he? And my sister said, yeah. She goes, I had a dream. He came to me. He was really young. And we danced and danced all night. Wow. She goes, it was so real. And then he asked her you know, some questions that only... He she would know what they were. So I believe my dad, you know, did go meet the Lord. He was in his new body. He got to dance with my mom one last time. And no yeah, kidding. that was, yeah. But she's, she never remarried. She always loved my dad and just wow. never found anyone to take his place. Wow. And so like, what do you remember in like elementary school? Like, the, like you said, you were like a, the problem child getting in trouble. Give, give me like what you were, what was going, what was going on? Let's say elementary school. Um, well, or do you even remember? I do. I do remember a lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, my younger years. Elementary school was, you know, I went to a predominantly white um, school. I went to Coronado High. I went to Coronado, well, Central Elementary, then um, Coronado Junior High School to Coronado High School, and I remember being um, like the only. Um, ethnic girl and, and or kid in school and I remember teachers would 
um, you know, point out that my mom was Filipino. But other than that, you know, I had I had a few yeah, I had friends and stuff, but I always kind of felt a little bit out of place because I was, you know, half Filipino, half white, and most of my friends were all white. So it's just, it, but but I I was never made fun of, or I was never, but I was always treated. I felt like a little bit differently, yeah. you know, and especially too because I was being raised by just my mom. All my friends had their mom and dad in the house, and I was um, this you know a little Asian girl with uh, just a mom raising her in, in Coronado, and we certainly weren't a Navy family like the majority of the kids. And we certainly weren't rich <laughs> like the majority of the kids in Coronado. We were probably the poorest people in Coronado. <laughs> but, yeah. but you know, other than that, you know, I, I – and, like, through high school and stuff, you know, I had a lot of friends. And it's a small school. So, you know, I, I think being at small schools makes a big difference, you know, as far as, like, how you're treated. And there's just not a lot of bullying going on, although it was always made apparent to me that I was, you know – um, I was different in in in, in way in 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 a, in a in a way. Yeah, and and what's in, what's interesting to me is because I, when I got here, I was actually with the Navy. I started in Coronado in North Island. Okay. So what's interesting, what you're saying is, I would actually think that there'd be more Filipino, right? Because it's a thing. It is white it, guys marry Asian women when they're on deployment. They do. It's a thing. It is a thing, especially back in the 60s. Back in the, especially back in the 60s, <laughs> yeah. the 70s, the 80s. It was a major thing. Like, it was the thing. It wasn't until I got into high school that some of my friends were Guamanian. I had some Guamanian friends. I didn't really have any other Filipino friends. I was like a... It was odd. Yeah. Yeah, it was really oh. odd. But, um, yeah. But, so. but then again, Coronado is known as a very affluent area, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. maybe the maybe all the others were living like in National City or no no offense to the National no, City. No, hey, that's where all my my family is. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, sure. Linda Vista. Exactly. Linda. Right? Mostly Mira Mesa. National City. Yeah. 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 We oh, call that's it. So, yeah, that's National so funny City. that I said that. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> no offense, but you know, let's. No, it's you know, true. Yeah. Um, okay, so what what point did you did things start getting like where you got into drinking and what what started first alcohol drugs experimenting? Yeah, so you know I definitely alcohol. You know mm. alcohol started off first. Um, you know there were some other things that happened to me leading up to this point too. So um, at age twelve, I was um, sexually abused by someone in my family. <sighs> by a, a person who wasn't actually blood related to me, but had had, had married into the family. And um, that scarred me for obviously a, a variety of reasons, wow. obviously. So, and I kept it secret. I was always shameful. I never, see, I never told anybody because I was so afraid. I was definitely um, like groomed up to that point to where something actually happened to me. And, mm. um, and I was made to feel like I I would be, you know, in major trouble if anybody were to find out. And so it was something that I kept secret for a long time and held in for a long time. And um, I didn't understand. And I always felt like it was my fault. I was right. made to believe that it was my fault for, for these things that happened to me, for this, this, this incident that happened to me. And um, I carried it through for, for my high school years. And so 
what alcohol did for me mm. was because sometimes I would feel like a little bit of an outcast. Alcohol gave me that liquid courage. It would make me feel welcome. I, I felt like I fit in my skin. I started to feel like I was... Um, I'd feel like the life of the party. I was, you know, it worked. Alcohol worked until it didn't work, right? But that's later down the road. But in my community, it was just a normal thing. You know, we would look for parties on the weekend and and we would drink on the weekends. You know, we'd find ways to get Navy guys to yeah. go buy yeah. us. We call it a tap back then. So yeah. we go, hey, can you get us a tap? That's what we'd call it. So we would find, you know, Navy guys to get us beer and we would drink and or whatever we could get our hands on. And so that's just something that we did. And the girls that I hung out with, a group of friends that I hung out with, that's just kind of what we did. And in Coronado, um, I mean, people would have parties. You could just walk down the street and find someone having a party and just kind of crash parties. You never had to be invited. Yeah. So that's just kind of like what we did on the on the weekends. And it, and it was you know it was fun back then. It was, drinking was not anything that was a, a an addiction to me at that time. Right. It was just something to help relieve the pain, to make me feel fit, to make me feel like I fit in, make me feel like I was part of the the fun group. And so it worked. And then, so <clears throat> you're saying that, and I'm going to go back to the, the quote unquote incident thing, incident thing. You never told your mom about that? Never told my mom. Never told anyone. This, so this was somebody married into the family that was grooming you for what years you said? Two to three years? Probably more, more like six to seven months. Six to seven yeah. months. Yeah. And that person is no longer in the family anymore. Um, and wasn't after, after that incident, I would say probably maybe about six or seven months after that had happened to me, he was gone and he left and, um, it was my cousin's husband and I never told my cousin you either. Didn't? No, I didn't tell anybody. <sighs> wow. Yeah. I didn't tell anybody. I was so scared. Now, let me ask you this because he almost seems like, uh, I'll, I'll say this word like a professional, meaning he groomed you. So my guess is he did it to others. I have prayed that that didn't happen right. to other girls as, as when he left, I had heard that he had started a, a new family and it scared me that mm. maybe he might've had a daughter because grooming and making it seem like it's, you know, like, like you almost felt like it was your fault and grooming it so that you didn't tell anybody right. that, that's like, you know, you, that's just not, doesn't seem like a first timer. You know what I mean? Like right. to, to be that, Right. Cunning and conniving to be able to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah, I, um, yeah, I didn't tell anyone, um, because I was just so scared. Wow. And I wanted to go back to that, by the way, because I know that this is, uh, a topic and thank you for sharing this, by the way. It, um, but I know that there's people listening and watching that have either gone through this or, or maybe even going through this right now, yeah. or, or maybe have a child in the family. Yeah. And so at what point did you think it was okay to tell somebody, or did you? How, how long did you wait? Well, first I want people to know, and any women that are out there, even men that are out there that feel, that have something like this going on, that to know that it's not your fault, and and to not be scared of the threats, but to be but, but to tell someone. I wish I would have told someone 
when I was younger and I could have gotten the help that I needed and I could have got the counseling and the therapy that I needed to go to be able to, to, to deal with, with this. But I lived with this because you don't want to live with this, what's going on. Even if it's, even if you think that it's something minor, they're telling you that it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. It's always a big deal to be, um, you know, to be, to be violated in any way, shape or form. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are or, or who it is. It's never your fault. And you are being, um, you're, you're being manipulated. So if, if there's someone out there that's listening, just know that you're being manipulated and that, you know, pray and ask God to deliver the right person to you to be able to go and talk to that person, you know, but you will be safe once you tell the right person. And that's, that's so impactful right there because most people don't tell because they've been groomed to think that they're, it's going to, like, you're going to be like in harm's way. Right. When in essence, you're not most likely, right? Right. People will come to your rescue and, and they will, you know what I mean? Yeah, they will. But uh, they, 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 they plant the idea and they, they plant the idea that you will be in trouble, that, that your family will be hurt, you will be hurt, um, that they will hurt you. So, and they will hurt, because they can hurt you. So what you know of what they're doing to you is hurting you, you know, in a way. And, and if they can do that to you, then they can do that to anybody. They can even hurt you in other ways. So the idea of them, you know, if, if they can go as far as to do the things that they're doing to you, then what's to think, what we believe as the victims is that, of course, they can hurt us even worse and our family. And so it's not true. And it's just a way of manipulating, uh, manipulating you into believing something that's, that's, that, that won't happen. So just to get the help so that those people can, and I've known people, I've actually talked to someone who went through the same situation that I went through. She ended up telling her mom and then that person ended up in jail. So wow. that's where you want to see that person. You want to see that person in, in, in prison for what they're doing. And this, <clears throat> this also, uh, um, it pertains to m- people in a marriage um, sure. that are being abused. Absolutely. I- in abuse in any way. 100%. What, whether it's verbal or, you know, hopefully not physical. That's but right. But it's the same thing. That's right. Right? That's right. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was married before my, my marriage uh, to Brian. I'm, I'm currently almost 30, 29 years married to wow. my current husband. But prior to getting married to Brian, I was married to another man who was who was physically abusive to me. Oh, wow. So uh, exactly. And so what happens is you begin to believe this person. You know, they, they, they'll hurt you, they'll beat you, and then they'll turn around and make and promise you the world, you know, and make everything just sound so good. And we keep going back and forgiving them and forgiving them. And, you know, it's very... It's very similar to alcoholism. Alcoholism will do this to you too. It's like an abusive relationship, and when you're used to an abusive relationship, you can, you know, coming from coming out of an abusive relationship, which was my first husband, and then and then alcoholism is the same thing. You know, it it treats you really good, and then it, and then it'll beat you beat you to the ground, but then you just keep going back to it. You just keep going back to it over and over again people ask why you know why do we why do some women keep going in and out of these these abusive relationships well 
I can totally relate. I went in and out of an abusive relationship with alcohol, yeah, you know, and drugs. Yep. And so going back to the, um, the like when the when the how long the abuse with your you said physical abuse. Well, physical abuse, and mostly, mostly verbal abuse. Okay. With my first husband, yeah. but yes, there ha- there was times that were, there it was physical abuse. So. Um, and you was know. it just because he'd apologize and say, I'm sorry, and, and then you'd, okay. Well, yeah, and they, they put you in in um, a situation where you feel like, at least in my situation, I'm not going to say this for everybody, but my situation was I felt like this was the only way I was supposed to live and that he was the only one I could ever have. I would never amount to anything. I was made to feel like I was way less than and that this was the best life I was ever going to have and he was the best thing that was ever going to happen to me I didn't even feel worthy enough or good enough to even live and this is when I lived in Colorado I didn't feel worthy or good enough to ever live back in California because I just wasn't good enough to live somewhere like like California that was literally what I thought and what I was led to believe was this was all I had. I wasn't allowed to have friends. Um, I wasn't allowed to do anything really so he, on he my own. So he didn't allow you to have friends? No, I had no friends. I had no social life outside my marriage. I had, literally, I was just held sort of captive in my own home. And constantly, you know, I could never do anything right. I could never clean right. I could never cook right. I could never do anything right. So... Um, I lived that way for two years. I had my fir- I, and then I had my first son. I got pregnant with my fir- with my first child, my my son, and then um, at six months pregnant, finally got up enough courage to leave. I went to I lived in a, a um, an abuse uh, um, shelter, a women's shelter for yeah. about for about a month. Oh, so my mother-in-law took me in, okay. and she took me in, and and then a- after. Um, I don't know, after a few weeks there, I ended up coming back to California, and then I gave um, birth to my son here in San Diego, and I moved in with my aunt and my mom in La Mesa, and, and I've, I've been here ever since. And, and so go back. Now, what was the final straw that gave you the courage to, to say that's it, and you what moved oh, out? I, you know what? I just couldn't take any more. I just couldn't take any was more of the abuse. Was it a daily occurrence? Like it was li- a daily occurrence. It wasn't just one incident that made me move. It was just a, an accumulation of everything, and maybe all my maybe all the crazy hormones yeah. that you go through when you're pregnant. I don't know. Just I just couldn't take any more. I was emotional already, yeah. and then just even more of an emotional wreck. You know, with everything going on and just taking beatings. You know, verbally and. Physical, physical, the physical abuse did not happen while I was pregnant. It happened prior to being pregnant. But the emotional and the verbal abuse that I was going through um, from when I got pregnant and and that I was something that he just, he couldn't even look at me anymore. the, the, The thought of me with a stomach just made him sick to his stomach. Really? Yeah. And he told you this? Yes, he did. He just couldn't look at me anymore. He couldn't, yeah, he didn't, just couldn't look at me. So oh my God. Th- a lot of that was, you know, just 
a lot of that was just all built up and then I moved in with his mother and then from there I just I came to San Diego and then had my son Austin here and yeah. and did um did he uh what was my question I was thinking oh were, were you trying to have a baby at this point no, we weren't trying. That's so, what I was going to say. Yeah. It didn't seem like this guy's somebody that would... No, we weren't trying. And I'd actually filed for divorce in Colorado prior to me even moving back to San Diego because I was just done. I was I was done. Did you talk to your mom about this? Was she advising you? Did you get behind in her? Yeah, my mom, my mom was advising me as far as the legalities of it. We just didn't know. And I was actually um, asked, do you... By by my attorney here in Colorado, by my attorney in Colorado, she said, "Are you sure you want to file for divorce in Colorado? If you're going to move back to California, I said yes. I just want to get it over with. I was young. I was like in my mid twenties, and she said, "Well, you have to understand that if he decides to try to get custody, that the courts have to stay here in Colorado. You can't move the courts to California if that's where you're going to be." I'm like, "Oh, he won't do that. I didn't think that he would." Moved. To California, had Austin. Six months later, he goes and he files for custody. And he had told me, he goes, if you divorce me, I'll make your life a living hell. And he did. And he fought me for custody for years. Now, during this time, after my son was born, I started getting involved in, and this is when I started getting involved in, my drinking started, was heavier, drugs started getting involved in drugs. And he made my life a, a living hell, yes, but um, I made it worse by what I was doing. And he fought me for custody, and he won custody of our son. And my son grew up in Colorado for first eighteen for eighteen years, and wow. was never allowed to come to California. I would have to go to to, to Colorado to visit my son if I wanted to see my son. So the drugs and the alcohol just skyrocketed in my life after I lost custody, physical custody of my son. I was just done. The only thing that ever made me feel better was just being completely numbed out by by whatever I, I could get my hands on at the time. And um, any time that I needed it, wanted to go see Austin, I had to fly to Colorado to go see him. And he just made that situation even much more difficult, you know, more and more difficult. So... Another bit of advice, if you're going to file for a divorce, <laughs> which hopefully that none of, no one has to ever go through what I, what I went through, but make sure it's going to be in the state that you plan on living in because um, it was really difficult. Because that's what worked against you, huh? What, yeah, 100%. And, and we both know at this, well, I know he did not want your son. It was no. just to spite you. It was. It was just to spite me. And, you know, my son when he was 13, was able to come out here one time. And when that, when he did come out, now at that time when he came out, I was, I was sober, but we'll talk about that part. But, um, he came out here and then when he went back to Colorado, he told his dad, he goes, I want to move to, I want to move to California. And then his dad coerced him with all these other things and said he was going to promise him a truck and, you know, got him to stay out there. But then when Austin turned 18, he moved to, to California. Austin is now 32, yeah. but he's been living here in San Diego ever, ever since. Wow. So did Austin ever tell you like as a child with him, was, was he abusive to Austin? Yes, he was. Yeah. yeah. It was, we, I did fight in the beginning 
to try to get my son back. But then I felt like I didn't want to have to play this tug of war thing with him. And so um, when he was much younger, I know that Mike was really, was a good dad. It wasn't until his later years, his teen years, that Austin was abused physically by his dad. Um, and Mike was an alcoholic. Yeah, and I was going to ask that. And yeah, and he died of cirrhosis two years after Austin moved out here when Austin was 20 really? years old. Yeah. Wow. And um, so during this time, now, what were, you, what were you doing for work? Well, at the, at the time, I was a travel agent. I was ah. working as a travel agent for, for years. I used to manage a very big travel agency here in San Diego called Costa Travel for about 16 years. So, yeah, I was in the travel industry for many, many years. Wow. All right, so go back. So Austin here, now, uh, now we're going to kind of reverse and go back a little bit, right? Because when did the, uh, you said the drinking and this night, we'll go back to that. Um, did it start before you were married? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, um, like I said, in high school, I would drink. And then. Yep. Whichever, I mean, the majority do. Yeah. Party. The majority do. Yeah. But there's a time when a lot of people change their behaviors to meet their goals. I was changing my goals to meet my behaviors. Uh. And, and that's because. I believe that sometimes people, some people can drink, have a drink every single day and not become alcoholic. And there are those people who drink maybe once a month and become alcoholic. Yeah. And alcoholism isn't about drinking a lot. Alcoholism is about, it's a, there's a physical component that, that's, that's accompanied with alcoholism. There's a physical addiction. There's something physical going on. That's why when people say, well, why don't you just control the amount that you're drinking? Well, that's not possible with someone who's alcoholic because once alcohol's in the body, we break out in what's called a craving. Yeah. So where, I mean, for a lack of better terms or an example, it'd be like an allergy. So when I put alcohol into my body at some time in my life, when I, in my drinking, um, that allergy set in. And now I have this allergy that when I put alcohol into my body, I break out into a craving for more, like every other alcoholic. So there's alcoholism is, is it's physical, mental, and it's also spiritual, obviously. So for years, I would, you know, for, for a number of years after even high school and in college, I drank, but there was something different about the way that I drank than the way my, some of my friends drank. And some of my friends did drink like me, too, that drank alcoholically, too. And alcoholism and hard drinking are not the same thing. People yeah. who are hard drinkers and alcoholics, were, at, at a certain time, the hard drinker can make, given sufficient reason, they can stop or moderate. I didn't have that ability to do that because addiction, alcoholism had set in at a very, very young age for me, you know, in, in my early 20s. And so I was drinking. I was not drinking to... Uh, uh, to have fun, I was drinking because I had to drink. So drinking was just something that I needed to do once I started drinking. So you know, through college, and then and then that's accompanied with trouble. So you know, where drinking starts out as fun, yeah. and then it's fun <clears throat> with problems, and then it becomes nothing but problems mm. because that's just where alcoholism takes you. So in my early years, I you know, when I was nineteen, I was I, I when I was eighteen years old, seventeen years old. I'm sorry. Um, my senior year in high school, I was crowned Miss Coronado. Mm. And then 
I had gotten the scholarship and, and everything to go to San Diego State, and I went to San Diego State, and I basically had the world at my at my feet. You know, I was given so, so many great opportunities to succeed in life, but like I said, I changed my goals to to meet my behaviors, not consciously, but that's basically what I was doing because to me, it was just easier to live a life you know, of partying than it was to have to study and be in school. And so I dropped out of college. And when I did that, my dad moved me to Texas. He wanted me to move to Texas. I was living with a a Coke dealer. (laughs) My boyfriend was a Coke dealer. I like almost lost my crown as Miss Coronado because my pageant director called me up and she's like, we hear that you're doing drugs. And I'm like, of course not. This is when you were in Texas? No, this is when I was here in San Diego oh, okay. still. So I hadn't gone to Texas. Dealer here. Here in, here in California. That's when my dad found out and then moved me to Texas. So then I moved to Texas, and he thought that maybe he can change my life and clean my life up. But, you know, I just basically took my problems with me to Texas. And so now I'm living in Texas, and I'm beginning to find all, all these, these new friends that do the same thing that I do. And sure enough, you know, just getting in the same trouble, you know, and living with my father who is a um, practicing alcoholic, you know, drinking alcoholically. And um, it just, the, the two just didn't mix. The two didn't mix, and, so I moved out. And so back, going back to 1718, Miss Coronado, were you doing drugs then or just alcohol? I was doing drugs and alcohol then. In yeah. your teens? In my teens. Okay, so get into that. Like, when did this start? When do you remember, like, what led to it? Was it? Did it start with drinking, then a little pot, and then it led to this? Like, give me the whole... Yeah, well, I never was much of a pot smoker. I went straight from drinking to Coke. You know, I was doing right a there. lot of cocaine, yeah. And it was prevalent in Coronado. No you know? kidding. Oh, Yeah. Uh, back back in, in the eighties, in in the late seventies, uh huh, in my teens, late seventies, fifteen, early eighties. How many teens? Three. I would say probably seven, sixteen, seventeen years old. People were doing cocaine at that age. It was very common. Very common. <sighs> very common. This is just like like when I hear stuff like this, it's yeah. crazy. Very common in Coronado. Yeah. And, and now we keep saying Coronado, I'm assuming because there's money there. There's money there. And where there's money, there's good drugs. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's like I, exactly I had a guy right. on here that said he uh, was a, uh, actually a prior Crips gang member. He went to La Jolla Day. Uh-huh. He said the drugs there were so great. Right. Like way more than he had in his ghetto school. Oh, for sure. He said it was just like a, whatever you wanted, you could get it and it was the best. Exactly. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, that's where the money is. So that's where the drugs are going to be. Yeah. So we got, you know, yeah. So we constantly, you know, we're every weekend looking and doing that. And then up all weekend, like when you go on a Coke binge, do we just up for two, three days? And how would you get to school on Monday? So in, in high school, I didn't get, I didn't do it as much, but I was introduced to it. And at, at 16, then 17, um, yeah, then we would just do it on the weekends. We would never do it during the week. It was always Friday and Saturday night. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd stay up and we'd party all night and, and do whatever. And, and then when I graduated from high school, you know, I was getting in so much trouble at home. Did your my mom, mom know was, you were doing? Oh no. My mom was extremely naive to everything. So <laughs> she had no, she had no idea, you know, it was easy to hide back then because yeah. it wasn't 
it wasn't so much of a problem, but yet it was a problem. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Yes. So I was constantly grounded. I was always grounded because I was always getting in trouble. I would, always, I would always miss my curfew, obviously. I wasn't home by 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock when I was supposed to be. And I was always, I was always grounded. And I was constantly getting in trouble. And I was, uh, I was dating a guy at the, at the time when I was a senior in high school. And he was already in college or he was out of school. And he lived in Coronado, and he had his had his own place, and um, yeah. Then then I I was Miss Coronado, and then after that I graduated from high school, and then I moved out, and um, I still had to make appearances and do all these things as Miss Coronado had to do, and it was always such a challenge. And you know, I never really wanted that title. It was something my mom wanted me to do. I was always kind of like like the rebellious one. I was yeah. kind of the tomboy. I was always you know wanting to do things other than doing, having to do anything that had to do with beauty and that stuff just wasn't, wasn't my gig, you yeah. know, but, um, so the sooner that I could just, you know, take this crown off and, and not, you know, have to go on to be, you know, uh, all these other pageants I had to go to because Miss Coronado was a USA preliminary. So from Miss Coronado, you had to go to Miss San Diego, Ferris of the Fair. From there, went on to Miss California, USA, Miss Universe. And I just didn't want anything to do with that. You know, my yeah. my goal was to go have a good time, and I couldn't have a good time as Miss Coronado. I was constantly having to, you know, keep my nose clean, no right. pun intended, yeah. but I didn't want to do that. Yeah. You know, my life was, you know, living this wild life, and I didn't want to go to college. I just, you know, I didn't want to do any of that, so I just con- was never in class, and I met this guy who was a drug dealer, and <laughs> then I was living with, then I moved out and I was living with him, and that's when my dad had said, enough is enough. You're moving to Texas. And so that's when I moved to Texas. All right. Okay. So I wanted to after go back. I, after, I had, I, I, after I gave my crown up. So oh, you gave year, it up? I, no, I, I'm sorry. After I had given it, you know, the year, the year had come. Oh, yeah, and then I crowned yeah. the next Miss Coronado. And literally, like, days after that, I was, I was, I'd moved to Texas. My dad said, when, you, you know, when you're done as, with your reign, you are moving here. Because he knew what was going on. He knew exactly what was going on. Your mother my, didn't. My mom didn't. My dad worked as a constable for the sheriff's department in, in Montgomery County. And so he was able to find, you know, records of people. And he could see, you know, who this person was that I was living with. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was. He had had it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you go to Texas. You, you meet up with other people. They're doing the same thing. Yeah. And I'd go on a date. And my dad would run their license plates. And, you know, Yeah. So, and I would do the same. I was still running amok. Yeah. I was still running amok. So there was a, a time when I had moved out from my father's. My father, you know, had his own problems with, at this time, he's with, like, n- wife number five. And he had had his problems. And wife number five, her name's Lynn. I can mention her name because she's also uh, sober to this day. But yeah. uh, she was going to Al-Anon and she was having problems with my dad and his drinking and she was seeing that I was on the same path too. So for me, it was drinking and drugs and she, what's Al-Anon? Al-Anon is for the, the, the family of the alcoholic, Mm. um, adult children of alcoholics, the person who lives with the alcoholic, who's usually not alcoholic themselves, but sometimes they can be. So it's the Al-Anon is for the families. Got it. So she was going to Al-Anon at the time, and then she was, you know, approaching me about my problem. And she said, you know, I really think you have a problem. And at that time, I was dating another guy who had said the same thing, too. And, you know, both kind of had this intervention with me, 
seeing where I was going. You know, I was, I, I was just living this life that was just, just out of control. You know, coke all the time, yep. uh, drinking all the time. So when I was 20 years old, I went into NA and AA. I went to my first meeting. And from that point on, I stayed clean and sober for a year and a half and had um, was introduced to 12-step recovery at, at an early age when I was 20. And so from 20 to about 21 and a half, I was in the program for, um, yeah, for a yep. year and a half. Okay. And then what, did you relapse? What happened? So, so yeah, I did. So, um, the one thing about, about, um, recovery, but a lot of people that come in young, it's really hard for them to relate sometimes and to really understand what addiction is and what alcoholism is. And had I known what I know now, I probably would be sober, you know, almost 40 years to this yeah. day. But, um, because I was so young and I was in a room full of people in their 50s, you know, and, you know, sharing these stories of these things that had never happened to me. Right. You know, I didn't lose a, um, I didn't lose a, a, a child in a, in, in a divorce situation. I didn't get a DUI. I, you know, hadn't, you know, gotten in car accidents from, you know, from alcoholism. I didn't live under a bridge. And I'm like comparing outside circumstances with something that's an internal problem. And so I'm like, I'm not like these people. I can go back out. I can drink. I'm fine. And so that's what I proceeded to do. And I started hanging around people. I, at the time I was, so I started doing these things. In, in Texas, it was a really big deal to do bikini contests. So there was a, we were, I was part of this, these circuit girls and we would do these, this circuit through Fort Worth and, and Dallas and we would run these bikini contests all the time. So that's what I was doing. So I was yeah. living in bars. So I was basically living in bars and I'd go to meetings during the day. Well, the two just didn't work. No. And especially because my friends were not, uh, my friends in bars were different than my friends in meetings. And so I started living this life um, and doing these bikini contests, these circuits, and that's how I was making my money at the time. I was also working for Eastern Onion singing telegrams, and I used to, you know, just kind of like living this this crazy life of, of that 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 crazy, you know, life that that just always was so exciting to me. And I was um, in this circuit of of people, and then next thing you know, I'm out finding dope, drinking drinking again, and and one thing led to another. And so was it only Coke? Did you get into crystal meth, any heroin? Like how far did this go? Are, so, we, are we getting there? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. that actually, yeah. So so Coke was a little hard for me to find in and Texas. it's expensive. And it was expensive, yeah. And so uh, in, in Texas it was called crank, ah. which is the same thing as crystal meth. Yep. So I got really involved in, in using a lot of crank and then a lot of ecstasy. Mm. And this is when my experiment with just about everything, you know, I was... I was using everything other than putting a needle in my arm. So I had tried everything up to this point other than heroin. I'd never put, I'd never done heroin. And so that would be my way of justifying, you know, I don't have a drug problem. Right. I don't do heroin. Well, this, this whole life of living in, in, in with drugs and alcohol and living this whole like um, just drug addicted life and around the people that I was with, and being in the bars and doing bikini contests and then being told, you know, you can make so much more money if you went and worked at the Million Dollar Saloon. Ooh. So 
it sounded like such a great idea. And the, my boyfriend at the time was a male stripper. Oh, he was? Yeah. <laughs> and so I decided, they said, you, you could make hundreds, even $1,000 a night if you, worked at, if you worked in these places. And so next thing you know, I was a dancer for four years in, in Dallas. I worked at Million Dollar Saloon. I worked at Lace. I worked at 2400 Club in Arlington, Texas. And that's what I did for a living. And that's what helped me justify, you know, using and drinking and just all came a part of it. And, you know, when you look back, when I look back on this life, I get, I get a little bit of anxiety because um, I, I realize it was I was so coerced by the enemy, mm. and he had. It, it is certain. It is truly the devil's playpen, that area because yeah. in that 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 lifestyle. Because everything that you do, you are put on a pedestal, and you're treated like a princess, like a queen, like a celebrity, by doing and living that life. Right. You know, and and it all seems to be normal. It all seems to be okay, and you're making tons of money. And yeah, because you're you're basically worshipped and idolized, and and you have money, so you can go exactly. out and buy what your clothes. You can buy your shoes, and then you correct me if I'm wrong. The justification of doing the drugs and the alcohol it's part of the it's part of your business. Oh, managers would bring it to you. Yeah, they yeah. get it for you. Yeah. And I, I look at where I was going. So at 17, I had a life as in, in the pageant life. And in, in the pageant life, I went from being something that was that had that was supposed to carry moral character, right. and and not just beauty, but moral character. And you know, I was chosen because of the goals that I had. And the the scholarships that I was I was given and the life that I could have based on the education and if I would have followed that path, but it's like I went from that to the complete flip side and the other side of showing, you know, of, of like basically it was you know adult entertainment, yeah, and it was a complete flip side, you know, where God could have had me, God wanted to give me this life, you know, where I could you know follow Him and have be upstanding a, a, a moral character and could be a, a, an example to other right. girls. And here I was. It's not like we, when we're girls, when we're growing up, we're going, when I grow up, I want to be a dancer in Dallas. You know, that's not something that I ever wanted to be. But drugs and alcohol took me down that avenue. And basically, I just bought the lie from the devil that, you know, you're never going to be good enough to live up to that. But you know what? We'll put you on a pedestal if you live this life. And I literally bought the lie from the devil. And I didn't realize it at the time. But when I look back at, on it today, I see, and I, it, it gives me anxiety. Yeah. I look back and I see I was literally following a path down the wrong road. Oh, my gosh. It, like you literally went the complete opposite. Complete opposite. Complete opposite. For four years of my life, I lived in that in that environment and and you know it you think back like going all the way to childhood and we know this that the your dad leaving you know was a big part of this trajectory absolutely you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely because when you're a dancer 
then you're idolized by men and worshipped over by men and you're given everything and you're just, I mean, everything comes your way. Constantly seeking validation yeah. from men. Constantly seeking validation from men, you know, in any shape, way, shape, or form because I never got that. You know, and that's right. one of the things they say about fatherless daughters is that they usually end up with unwanted pregnancies. They usually end up um, in drugs and alcohol in their lives. They usually end up in broken marriages. And all three things had happened to me. All three things. All three things. And an abusive uh, marriage at that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met. My first husband. That was where I was leading to. I was going to ask you because I'm doing the timeline in my head as you're speaking. And I remember okay. that you were married like mid-20s, low-20s. And I'm realizing, right. okay, we're there now. We're, mm-hmm. in that, we're in that age group. Right. And I'm assuming, I was going to say, did you meet him? Like your husband has to come in the mix at this point. He met me in the, in the club. In mm-hmm. the club. Yeah, that's where he met me. Yeah. And so what, did he come in often? And, you know, you were his girl. and He was, no, he wasn't someone that, he was someone that came in there like once or twice and he came in with a friend that had known me. And, um, at that time in my life, it was like right around four years of being in that, in that environment. I remember thinking to myself, I go, I can't be doing this the rest of my yeah, I was life. Say, when did it dawn? you like, Whoa, what it am I doing? It dawned on me. I was probably about 25. I'm like, I can't be doing this the rest of my life. Like I can't, I can't be, I can't see myself doing this for forever. I've got to get out of here. You know, there's, I, I just, I started to feel the, just the, the depression, you know, it just, it, it's just a, it's a depressing atmosphere, yeah. you know, constantly, that's what you're doing. You're constantly just being around men that are only in there for one reason. And yeah, even though you're treated and put like a princess and up on a pedestal, you're really not. Right. Yeah. You know, it's all a facade. Yeah. It's and, and you catch on to it after a while. And, you know, I was just, I was over it. And I was ready just to get out. And I didn't know how I was going to get out. And at the time, he seemed like my knight in shining armor. Like he was going to get me out of this. And he was going to rescue me from living this life. And so, and that's what I thought that he did, you know. And we met, you know, long story short, ended up moving to Colorado, getting myself completely out of Texas. Was he already living in Colorado? Uh, he was al- already living in Colorado. He had a home in Colorado. So how did, why was he in Texas then? He was there for, um, he sold exotic cars. Uh-huh. And so he was there back and forth with someone who had a car dealership. Got it. Okay. Now, did your dad know what you were doing at this point? My dad had found out and completely disowned me. How far into the, your, your dancing career? I was probably career? a couple years into it. And when my father found out, my mom found out, broke her heart. Broke her heart. Broke my dad's heart, too, when they found out what I was doing. Both of them found out about a couple years in? A couple years in, yeah. How did it take them that long? I don't know. You know, we you didn't, must have had money. Like, hey, how all of a sudden you have money? Yeah. We, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. Well, we didn't have true. internet. So true. it was easy to hide things for a while. Yeah. You know, but then not for that long. You know, eventually they're going to find out. And so I think actually what had happened was someone had told her, a friend of mine had called my mom and told my mom what I was doing. And my dad and told them both. Yeah. Now, was this friend doing that to... Like in looking out for you, it was no. It was my on you? it was my boyfriend's sister who didn't like me. So oh. yeah, so she had she had one up she had one up on me. So she got no back at me. Kidding. Yeah, she didn't want me dating her brother. This is the brother that the the. It was a dancer. Yeah. 
Oh, the day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, God, that's funny. Um, now, okay, so going back to the your quote-unquote husband that pulled you out of here, yeah. moved to Colorado. Mm-hmm. Like, um, what did he say? I don't want you doing this anymore? Or? Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, you were done. Yeah, I was done. And um, he was like, you know, well, I'll, I'll bring you to, you know, to Colorado, kind of like wanting to show me that we'd have a house, we'd have a normal life, you know, we'd get married. You know, six months after I'd moved there, we decided we we're going to get married. And and then when that happened, like everything just switched. Like all of a sudden his personality switched. Really? Yeah, he got extremely controlling. He got verbally abusive. He got abusive. And just everything just kind of happened with the world. When once I had agreed to marry him, everything just kind of shifted like a completely different person. I saw completely because the person that I met was not the same person that I married. So, and so just, prior to that, so the, for the six months, he was not controlling. He wasn't abusive. No. At all. No, not at all. He was fun. He was, he was understanding. He was sweet. He was compassionate. And then all of a sudden when he, when I said that we would get married and when I started to let my whole family know and everybody know that we were going to get married, it kind of just switched. switched. Wow. That's crazy, switched. right? Yeah. It was really weird. Yeah. It was, and I actually tried to back out of it. I tried to back out of it saying I didn't want to get married and, um, I don't know. I don't know why I did. I wonder if that's the MO of controlling abusive guys. Like, I wonder if this story's common. Because I always wonder, was he like that before the marriage? Then why did you get married? Maybe yeah. this is the reason. Maybe a lot of guys aren't. Yeah. Is that I, possible? It could be possible. Yeah, it could be possible that they just put on a facade in the beginning of what they want, that what they think you want to be. But then the real peop- the real person comes out. Then as soon as they lock, lock you down, then they can just do whatever they exactly. want. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. So you tried to call it off. What happened when you tried to call it off? So I tried to call it off. And then, you know, I just, I I think that he just like pleaded and begged and, you know, we just, we just decided to get married. I don't even, I think I was so desperate at that time to just have my life change that I thought maybe he would change. Yeah. Maybe he would be different. You know, maybe things would be better. Uh, So. Okay. Now, drugs and alcohol at this point, what, what was going on with this? So I was still drinking. He said he, did, he didn't do drugs, but, you know, I was still drinking at the time. He definitely drank. We both drank together. And so really it was more just alcohol. You know, I was just doing a lot of drinking and, you know, drinking on it, my, it, the, the drinking sort of changed. Like alcoholism is very progressive for, for at least it was for me. So it wasn't something that was just like overnight. It wasn't like, you know, heroin, boom, you're done. Yeah. It was over a period of time, which is why it's so cunning. You know, you just, it, it's easy for you to justify, you know, that maybe there's not a problem here, but I started to see a problem. I started to see that, you know, alcohol started taking, um, started changing me. You know, I, I, the way I was drinking was a little bit different. I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't um, remembering things like I was before, you know, like I would have blackouts mm-hmm. a little bit more commonly. And then um, after a period of time, you know, um, it just, it just progressively got a little bit worse, you know, and I would try to find, it was hard to find drugs in Colorado. Cause like I said, like he didn't allow me to have friends and he didn't allow me to like, when did he, when did he lay down that law? How far in? He, oh gosh. From the beginning. You know, I, I mean, it wasn't like he said I couldn't have friends. It was like 
if I would make a friend, say at the gym or some, you know, he would just find a way for me to not hang out with them or it just or chop them down like exactly want to be around her she's exactly like even my work for like i would go to work and he sort of controlled where i where i would work too because i went to travel school after i after i got out of travel school i applied to twa airlines and got a job as a flight attendant and he wouldn't let me have that job because he didn't want me gone so i had to take a job as a travel agent in um in, in in Arvada, Colorado at the time, but it was an agency with only like two people. So it wasn't like a big agency where I would make a lot of friends. <laughs> it was a small place with just, you know, a, a couple people and he approved of that. So he was constantly not only controlling everything that I was doing, where I was working, where I was going. If I would go to the gym, he made sure he went to the gym the same time I did. So he was always had an eye over me. Wow. Now, um, and then, uh, so what now, now you got pregnant, how long into the marriage? So we, I was about a year into the marriage. I got pregnant. And he, at this point he's being verbally abusive. Um, is there any physical abuse at this point? You said prior it to. It was, yeah. Prior to being, prior to getting pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Prior to getting pregnant. So, um, yeah. So, uh, the, 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 you know, I, I should have left. It's easy to say hindsight's yeah, 2020. I should have left long before that but I was so he I was I was so believing that this was the best I was going to ever have in life he really had me convinced that I wasn't good enough to be anywhere else he really had me convinced that I wasn't good enough for anybody else that I would that he was the best thing in in my life and I don't know how conscious he was of what he was doing but I believe there was some consciousness of what he was doing and how he was manipulating me and making me believe and and, and you know you have to beat somebody down so many times before they you know I mean my, my self-confidence was just like zero yeah. I had no self-confidence I didn't think that I had you know I didn't feel pretty I never felt confident I felt stupid and I just felt like this was the life I was supposed to live I felt very trapped and then it wasn't until I got pregnant that you know maybe it was all the hormones going off I just said I got to get out of here I'm going crazy I was constantly crying every day and and then that's when I you know packed up my stuff moved into a woman's shelter for a period of time and then until my mother-in-law rescued me out of there and then I lived with her for a little while and then I just said I got to get out of here and I want to move to, to California, and I'm done with him. And this is, like, the whole time that I had moved out, he never was trying to come and get me because I remember there was a time when I was sitting at his mom's house, and he walked up to his mom's house, saw me in the window, you know, with my small little belly, and just and turned around and left because he just couldn't, he could not fight for someone that looked like like me being pregnant. It was weird. It was that bad. It was that bad. He just did not want to look at me. And I, I know this also from his wife that he married after, after me. So years later, yeah. he got, he remarried. And we became really good friends because she was wanting to leave him too, but she was afraid to leave him at that time because she thought that he would do the same thing yeah. to their son because they did have a son together. So Austin has a half-brother. Um, and she said the same thing. 
that he was just repulsed by her pregnancy. And so th this is just crazy. Just nuts. <laughs> nuts, yeah. Now, did he, when you found out you were pregnant, did he not want to have the baby? No, he wanted me to have the baby. He just didn't want to look at me pregnant. So, everything about everything about him was about appearance and yeah. how he looked, you know. Yeah. Wow. All right. So, okay. So where are, where are we now? Now we're, um, okay. So you, this, oh, so what did you do? Did you call the woman's shelter? How does that work? Oh gosh. I think, I think I just, I think I just called a woman's shelter. I probably looked one up in the yellow pages. No, I just went and I went because I didn't want him to know where I was going. Yeah. So I just mm -hmm. remember I'd gotten up and I'd left and I can't remember how my mother-in-law found me. I don't know if I had either, either called her or she had found me and then, um, and then, brought me you know I was only at that I'm in the women's shelter for about a week and then and then I was with her for a few weeks before I left and went came back to California and then his mother his, his mother mo his mom his his mother knew that he was like this yeah she did how did she how did she know did you tell her oh no she knew she, she knew. knew how her son was yeah she would she would did you call her for help did she call you I I when I was in the women's shelter, I don't remember how she'd gotten a hold of me or how she found out I was there. To be honest with you, I don't remember. It was either I yeah. called her or she found out somehow that I was there. But, um, but yeah, so she, um, she came and she rescued me from him or from being, from being there. And but she had known, you know, she, she would always say that, you know, her, her son's a piece of yeah, <laughs> constantly. Really? Oh yeah. She knew. She knew. And so now, during this time when you were, were you doing drugs when you were pregnant? The whole time I was pregnant and with my the three whole kids time. now, never did drugs. Never. Never did drugs, never. As a matter of fact, I believe that God made the thought of, or the smell of alcohol repulsed me. I got sick to my stomach. Really? Yeah. So you didn't drink at all either? No, didn't drink at all. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's That's crazy. crazy, actually. It is. So then, after you gave birth to your first son, mm -hmm. did the did the drinking and um, start again? Did it? It did immediately. 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 Well, not immediately because I did breastfeed for a little bit, but then after that, yeah, after I was done, I just started. Then drinking became more important, and so that of course I stopped breastfeeding, and then, yeah, drinking, and then with that was accompanied by. You know what? I can't. Uh, this is when I was in California. I was actually living in La Mesa, yeah. so close to El Cajon, which at the time was the meth capital El of Cajon. the United States. Yeah, yeah, El Cajon, California. And so it was really easy. Wow. I'm like, wow, okay, you know what? I want to lose a little bit of this baby weight, so let's get a little bit of meth. And so I was doing meth and drinking. Meth and drinking. Yeah. <sighs> Jeez. Um, and, and then that's uh, crazy that El Cajon, right? Because I've mm -hmm. heard Santee's pretty bad. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think it's everywhere now. And, yeah. and honestly, the meth back in the meth thirty years ago is not the same meth they're getting today. You know that, right? It's not complete. It's completely different. I've heard that, but what does what does that mean? So, well, okay. So we'll jump ahead a little bit yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Methamphetamine back in the days, back in the late eighties, early nineties, was all ma manufactured here in the United States. Right. So you'd always hear about these trailers that would catch on fire and yep. you know burn out in Hummel or wherever they were they were you know different areas out in Oklahoma people would go build go go cook meth or whatever they, you just don't find that here because it's too hard to get the product to make it here so one of my ex-boyfriends was a cook the dancer 
Um, and then my cousin, her boyfriend, was also a cook. Yeah. So they just don't make it here anymore. It's now coming from over the border. Really? And they're bringing over the border. And not just, it's not meth anymore. Everything now is laced with fentanyl. Everything. So you got meth laced with fentanyl, heroin, la- heroin laced with fentanyl. You've got, I've, I've heard even marijuana's laced with fentanyl now. Everything's laced with fentanyl. But we can get to that and why there, why is there fentanyl in everything right now? Well, there's a goal here. There's yeah. a goal to kill everybody. Yeah. So, yeah. And we're going to get into that. Yeah, we'll get into that. So, um, okay. So now, okay. So you got back, uh, to lose the baby weight. So give me, go from there. <laughs> yeah. So let's lose a little bit of baby weight. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just do a little meth, right? Yeah. yeah that's perfect so, plan. Yeah. Whatever. Just not, I mean, ain't going to hurt anything. Well, then it became, well, if, if I'm going to get anything done, I need myth. Well, if, if I'm going to go to work, then I, well, if I've got to, you know, it, if I'm just going to get up and wake up, I've, I've got to. Well, then, you know, now I've stayed up for three days. And so it's just. So a, were you up for that many days? Oh, sometimes I would be, yeah. Sometimes I would be up for days. I'd be up for days. And and you have your son at this point. I when, have my son at this point, when, yeah. When did the, when did the dad want take the custody so i was at at this point i was still living with my aunt and my mom in la mesa and so we were, we were all one big happy family living in one house and then i moved out and got my own place and then when i got in my own place that's when um dad wanted to you know that my mike wanted to get custody of austin and so that's when he fought me and he said you know i don't even care what i have to do or what i have to go through i'm gonna get custody of him and for no other reason than just to spite me yeah you know, so he didn't, he really didn't have any idea what I was doing, which, you know, maybe this was way of God's way of protecting my son at this right. time. Yeah. And I'm going to actually believe that. And that's what I want to believe yeah. because I was really in no condition to be raising a, a, a toddler or a little kid, a, 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 actually a baby at this time. So Mike ended up winning custody. He had more money than me, right? The, the ball was in his court, Colorado. Um, that's where everything took place. So you know, Colorado judge is going to award uh, custody to the parent living in Colorado. And that was Mike at the time who had the most money. And so he awarded him custody. But I was awarded visitation, but I had to go to Colorado to visit my son. So um, when I lost custody of my son when I had to get on that plane and take Austin to Colorado and drop him off at his dad's and that flight home I was I was wrecked you know I was wrecked I had lost my kid I was completely wrecked and I didn't even associate the fact that you know maybe if I didn't have all these mind-altering substances in my system I could have been a little bit more coherent to possibly win this case and and but you know, I believe that God was doing this to protect him, and I needed to go through what I needed to go through to get me where I am today, and to, you know, and, and for four years, for four years of my life, I was a heavy, heavy meth user every single day of my life. There probably wasn't maybe but seven days out of the four years where I didn't have meth in my system. I literally was 100% meth. I, I was, you know, I was that street tweaker, believe it or not. Yeah. I was that person that was just lost my jobs, you know. And now in that period of time, in that period of time, I met my husband who I'm married to today. So during that four years, during that this four, is the four years, years after you lost custody, this is that four years after I lost, after I lost custody. So I was, um, I, I met Brian 
And um, Brian was, well, let me back up one more. Yeah. So I was dating, so uh, I was dating before Brian, another guy named Brian, who was a Navy pilot. And I dated him for about a year, for, for a couple years. And then until he found out that I had a drug problem and then he left and then I started, and then I met my Brian now. Um, who who is just a regular civilian who had some really fun friends who like to party a lot. And I'm like, oh, so nice to finally be with someone who accepts me for who I am and for what I do. And Brian is, um, my husband is an amazing man. He is truly a gift from God and was put into my life for a reason and for the person that I am today, and I'll get into that. But when I met Brian, Brian was just a fun-loving guy, and he had some really fun friends, and he didn't actually think that I would date him. He thought I was going to end up dating his his best friend, who was like this Playgirl Model of the Year guy. You know, he didn't think that he was even good enough to date me, which was kind of funny, because I, I, I liked Brian way more than his friend. But um, we, we just started off with a really great friendship and a really great relationship, had a lot of really good, fun times. Next thing you know, uh, about a year later, uh, I get pregnant, and um, we get married after my, my daughter was born. Um, our first daughter was born. So after she was born, I... And by the way, during that whole pregnancy, yeah, again, yeah. I didn't use. So I guess there was... So yes, during that pregnancy, yeah. I didn't use, didn't drink. So... Um, but up in that point, you were doing meth. Did he know you were doing meth? He knew I was doing meth. And he did. He would, and, oh, yeah, and he did it with me. Oh, he did? Yeah, on, on occasion. Yeah, yeah. But not as much as I did. So. Um, and now when you're doing meth, are you snorting it? Snorting it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So snorting it and eating it. So I'd, and I'd, eating it. I'd eat and snort it, yeah. Now, after three, four, whatever, how many years, is your nose just shot at this point? Is it burning? Is oh, it a hole gosh, in it? yeah. Totally. Totally shot, Yeah. I start having problems with my teeth. I start having problems with, you know, but, but yeah, definitely. So I have McKenna. Did you lose your job, by the way? Did you say you lost your job? I did. I, I lost one of my jobs. Yeah. I lost one of my jobs that, um, at a travel agency that I was working at. They knew you were just strung out. Yeah. They just knew something was a problem. Yeah. So, you know, now at, at, by this point in my life, right. If we, if we go back, remember I said when I was first in the program, yeah. I didn't have DUI, right, didn't lose right, a kid right. in a custody battle, didn't get in a car accident. I had all those things. I'd got, by this time, I had two DUIs. I've had, um, uh, obviously lost my child in the custody battle, been in car accidents, um, and, 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 and then some. And, and a lot so. of other, a lot of other things had happened. A lot of other like crazy things. Meth is one of those drugs that is, if you want to meet Satan, do meth. Do meth, because you will meet him really quick. Towards the, I, I want to just mostly, I want to fast forward because I don't want to spend too much time yeah. harping on what it was like because it really yeah. is what it was like. The, if anyone's ever done it, it's never. There's never some good stories that come out of it. What's the difference between meth and coke? Like, what's the difference in feeling? The difference in well, coke comes from the cocoa plant, so there's a there's a difference. It, it, meth lasts longer. Um, it's made with poisons, chemicals. toxins, chemicals. It's horrible. Yeah. yeah. Um, but coke is a high that just doesn't last as long. 
but you get high and then you come down, you have to do more of it. Yeah. Where meth, you don't have to do as much, as much of it, yeah. but it wrecks your body. Yes. You know, it wrecks your body a lot faster. It mm-hmm. ruins, it ruins your skin. It ruins your teeth. It ruins everything. Everything, things start, start to deteriorate. Straight up chemicals. Straight up chemicals. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So towards the, so the last day, I remember this. So obviously by this point, I'm, I'm two years in uh, my marriage with Brian. I, I mean, my relationship with Brian, we're like six months into our marriage. We have a, a six month old, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a year and a half old daughter. And I'm at a point where I'm wanting to split up with Brian. I'm just getting this huge fight. I mean, just everything is, is, is in turmoil. And I don't really even have a reason other than just I'm a, I'm, I'm a mess. And So you got back on the drugs. I was back on the drugs after, after, after McKenna was born. So just huge fights. I kick him out of the house and he, he leaves. And then we're, we're in this like separation, like he's living somewhere else. I'm living somewhere else. And I'm at a place where I'm so paranoid and I'm doing meth and I'm like taking mirrors off the walls, thinking that there's cameras behind there. We live over a flight path in, in Lakeside, and I'm thinking helicopters. There's always helicopters going over, yeah. and I'm thinking they're after me. They're after me. I'm pulling things apart. This is one of the, it's a t- total tweaker move. This is what tweakers do. And they just start getting paranoid. I'm shutting all the windows. I'm thinking I'm being tape recorded, and I'm just a mess. And I remember coming down my hill, like driving down one day, and I'll never forget this. I remember pr- reaching out and praying to God and saying, God, please remove this from me. And I, um, I looked at my daughter sleeping and I remember just crying and thinking, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And something told me to call to call Brian and tell him to come back and help me. And I picked up the phone and I called I called my husband and I said, I can't do this anymore. We gotta get through this and I need your help. And um um sorry. It's all good. And he came home, and we held hands, and we sat on the couch together, and we prayed. And it was from that moment and that time, the obsession and the desire to ever use methamphetamine left, and it was gone. And that was over 25 years ago, and I, and I was over, way over. It was almost 30 years ago. It completely left me, and I was completely done, and I'd never used it again after that, ever since. But I said, I don't have a problem with alcohol. Alcohol's not my problem. It's always been drugs, you know, so I don't have a problem with alcohol, so I can still drink. So we ended up getting back together and, you know, and and started going to church. Um, We were going to Shadow Mountain community church at the time, which is a Baptist church, and um, and things were going well, and for a while, 
you know, and drinking was just something that we both do, something that he can do. And it was something that I thought I could do too. And so I began to, you know, just drink on a regular basis and then much more regular and much more regular. And the signs that I was seeing in my first marriage with drinking started coming back, you know, and I started seeing, started having blackouts. And so I drank, I drank continuously for about the next, oh, 15 years. I don't even know. And I don't know when it was or what happened, but there was a time in my life when that physical component that I was talking about that, that, that's part of addiction yeah. or alcoholism took over. I couldn't tell you the day. I couldn't tell you when. I just know that sometime in between um, that day that I stopped using meth and by the time I was 42 years old, that somewhere in between there, it's just got really foggy, you know, but, but alcohol just played a major role in my life. And then it be, and then it played a necessary role in my life. I had to drink. So my drinking went from maybe every day after work at five o'clock, I'd have a drink to like every, and then all of a sudden, well, I'm going to not have this, I'm going to quit this job because really the job was getting away in the way of my drinking. Wow. So then I thought, well, I just need a job where I can work from home. <laughs> so then I tried real estate with my husband and that didn't work. And then I tried being a, a travel agent from home and that didn't work because alcoholism now, now when it was okay to drink at five o'clock when you got home from work, now it was okay to drink at 12 o'clock and now it was okay to drink at 10 o'clock. And then it became okay. Then it be then work just got in the way. And now it was okay to drink when I woke up wow. because I had to drink. And then this is progressively what happened over those, those umpteen years, however long it was, until I was 42. And drinking just progressively got worse. It got worse and worse to where it wasn't something that I wanted to do anymore. I would wake up and say, I don't want to drink. I don't want to drink. God, please, I don't want to drink. And, you know, I'm a Christian at this time. So just know that, you know, just because I believe in Jesus, there's, there's believing in Jesus and complete reliance on, on Christ are two different things. I believed in Jesus. I believed, I, I believed that my, you know, if I were to die the next day, you know, my soul would be taken to heaven. I, I, I know that I would be with Christ. But there's there's something about about not giving everything to God, you know, and you can't do that when you're living in addiction. You can't do that when your God is is a liquid, and you can't do that when your God is anything other than God. And I made alcohol my God, and alcohol became that abusive relationship, just like I had in my first marriage, because it would beat the crap out of me. You know, but yet every single time I'd go back to it, knowing every time, and that's insanity. Yeah. Like I wasn't like, like it wasn't working for me anymore. I didn't want to drink anymore. I had to drink. There was a need drink. I needed to drink every day because I was physically addicted. I now did not metabolize alcohol like my husband metabolized alcohol. Something happened to me every time I put alcohol into my body that I broke out into a craving for more. And now I would wake up in the morning or I'd wake up in the middle of the night and have start DTing and having to go down the hallway and find something, something where I could where I could 
I, I could put into my body, whether it was, sometimes it was cooking sherry, sometimes it was mouthwash, whatever I could find to relieve, just to relieve, to give myself some, a, a little bit of sense of peace and comfort for, for a moment, for just for a moment, so I wouldn't detox. Wow. Crazy. It got really bad. Wow. And what, so what was Brian doing at this point? <sighs> well, so <laughs> constantly... Every morning I'd wake up and he would say, do you remember what you did last night? Do you remember what you did last night? Brian is the perfect codependent Al-Anon husband that he was supposed to be. He didn't want anyone to know that there was a problem. So he constantly would cover for me, constantly covering for me. Instead of letting me hit my bottom, he constantly covered for me because he didn't know what else to do. He didn't want to look bad. And he didn't want, and if if I looked bad, he looked bad. So he constantly was like covering for me and making sure that nobody knew what happened to Leanne last night, you know, until he stopped doing that. And he let me hit my bottom. He let me get to a place to where it was, it was just, you know, the end, the the end for me. I needed to, he he didn't, he didn't know that that's what I needed to do in order for me to quit. You know, everybody's bottom looks different. So here was my bottom. So I'd gotten into a few. Obviously, I'd gotten the DUIs. I already told you about that. I don't want to go into that much trouble. But the the last day that I drank was second to last day. My father and I decided we wanted to go to the VFW Hall in Alpine. And my kids had soccer practice. So they were were young at this time. I think they were like 9 and 11. Took them to soccer practice in Alpine. And then my dad and I ended up going to the VFW Hall to drink, you know, just like whatever yep. soccer mom does. Yeah. She goes and drinks while her kids are at soccer practice. Right. At least that's what I thought. So went to go pick up my kids, got them in the car, and something happened. And I blacked out. And all I remember was screaming. And the next day I woke up not remembering what had happened. And I was freaked out. And um, my dad had to tell me this time. Because before it was always Brian asking yeah. me, do you remember what happened last night? And this time my dad said, you know, you blacked out at the wheel and we almost killed all of us. And so I had to drive home. But he was trying to cover. He's like, but it's okay. You know, we'll make sure that that doesn't happen next time. And by this time, I was like, I almost killed my family. I almost killed my family. <clears throat> and I was so freaked out. The next day, I told Brian, I go, you know what? I'm going to go get help. And he had heard me say this a million times, and so he didn't believe it. And so I went to drive to my first AA meeting in like 20 years. And instead, I drove to a parking lot and drank because I was too scared. And then the next day, I said, okay, I've got to go. I've got to go. And so finally, I walked into my first AA meeting on November 9th, 2005, <clears throat> after not having a drink that day, and it was a women's meeting in Lakeside, and these women took me in and talked to me and loved me up, <clears throat> and, I, and I, I just remember that it was a little bit of a different AA meeting, but I knew that's where I needed to be, and I knew that's where I needed to go, and this one woman took me under her wing, gave me her phone number, and then... I would call her every single day. And it was from that day on that I've never taken a drink since. And that's my sobriety date, November 9th, 2005. 
and I haven't had a drink since that day, since the day that I realized that I almost killed my family. Because, you know, I would wake up and black out some nights. Yeah. I would wake up, and I would find myself in a, in a part of the house. I'm like, how did I get here? Like, like, and then I would think, what if I, like, stabbed someone in the middle of the night? I wouldn't even know if I did that. Right. And now I didn't even realize that I'd almost killed my family, and I was getting behind a wheel. Not only my family, I could have killed somebody else. So for me, that was my bottom. For me, that was my bottom. It was a number of things leading up, especially the blackouts and not remembering those things. And listen, blackouts aren't necessarily something that mean that you're, I mean, it just means too much alcohol. Right. right? Way too so, much. Yeah, it means way too much alcohol. But for me, it was happening on a daily basis. And, 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 and that was just the final straw for me, to know that, there, that I potentially could have killed my kids, my dad, myself, and somebody else. And so that was the last day. And then from that moment on, I was going to meetings and I was doing all this stuff. And then I was going to celebrate recovery. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this will be great because now I can like go to Bible study and I could be a normal person in church that goes to Bible study. And I was kind of really excited to like live a life of, of how a Christian should live a life. And, you know, I was just not drinking and I was, you know, Going, just just doing the things that I thought I was supposed to do, believing in God, but not fully relying and turning everything over to God. And I thought that just removing the alcohol was, was the answer. You know, just removing anything mind-altering was the answer. But I'm going to tell you that that's not what happened. My life wasn't hap- live, living happily ever after. I removed the alcohol. And removing the alcohol is just scratching the surface. It's just the beginning. Because now I'm living with the problem. Because now I've removed the alcohol. See, the alcohol was numbing the problem. The alcohol was numbing the the abuse. The the alcohol was numbing the the rape. The alcohol was numbing all the other problems, the, the lack of the father in my life. The alcohol was numbing all that, and I didn't have to think about that. Now you remove the alcohol, and I had nothing to replace it with. I didn't know that God could replace could could take that over. I, I believed in God, but I wasn't making that connection. I wasn't part of a community of people that was showing me that the Holy Spirit was here to be my helper. I wasn't part of a community like that. I was part of a community that, that would, I would go to AA meetings where we couldn't really talk about Jesus, but so I would go to Celebrate Recovery where we could talk about Jesus. And I was learning scripture, and then I'd go to my AA meetings, and I would talk about my problems, and just there was a missing, there was a missing component. I couldn't figure out what it was. My relationship at home, you would think that everything would be better, you know, and just things got worse, you know, mm. and, and nothing was like everything. There was this just turmoil after turmoil, and I had nothing to fix it with. And I kind of had this holier-than-thou attitude, like, well, I'm not drinking, so everybody needs to treat me better. You know, I was kind of, I had this sort of sense of entitlement, like, I'm entitled for you guys to, like, you know, love me and appreciate me because look how good I'm doing. I'm not drinking anymore. Attitude. Yeah. And that's not where God wanted me, but I didn't know. I had no one or nowhere to, to, to lead me to turning everything over to God. And we have these amazing steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? We use them at, at Awaken Recovery, which is what we do. Yep. We, the, same, the same steps. We admit we we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. Easy thing to do, right? Second is that I, I have to 
come to believe that God could restore me to sanity. Of course I believe that. And then the next is I make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the, over to the care of God. Okay, this is where I trip up. I can turn my alcoholism and drug addiction over to God, but you know what, God, I'm just going to run my life the way I know to run life. I'm not going to turn my finances over to you, or my romance, my, my marriage. Or my, I'm going to manage that. And, and, and that's where I got tripped up, not knowing that. So I was running amok for four years in sobriety. I had four years clean and sober, and I was at a place at four years sober where I wanted to commit suicide. Are you serious? I was I'm dead serious. I was, my husband and I were at, at each other's throats. We were fighting. We couldn't get, like, just, I mean, he was sick of me. I was sick of him. I left. I moved out, got an apartment, started just hanging around people in the program and, and thinking that that's what I need. I just need to, you know, be with someone in the program. And I got to a place in my, in, in my sobriety where I'm four years clean and sober. I have this apartment. My kids want, want nothing to do with me. And I want to kill myself. And I remember thinking, I remember contemplating on how I was going to do it. Brian said he wanted to talk to me, and I was going to let him pick me up in the car, and we were going to go talk, and I was going to make sure we were on the freeway, and I was going to throw myself out the, out, the, out the door. I'd already planned it. And then I got a phone call from my therapist who I was seeing, and she had said, listen, you need to go do something, go to a meeting. I, I know you're contemplating suicide. It was the craziest thing. I know you're contemplating this. You need to go do something. Moments after, I got a, a call from a friend of mine. She goes, there's this woman I want to hear you speak. She's speaking at this meeting. I wanted nothing to do with this. I really wanted to kill myself. Four years sober with nothing in my system. I was contemplating on how I was going to get out of my life. And this is, this is a perfect example of not bringing God into your life. Belief is not the same thing as complete 100% reliance and surrender yep. to Christ. It's not the same thing. You need belief before you can do that. But I had never really totally done that. So I went and heard this woman speak. And, <coughs> and when I heard this woman speak, I never heard recovery like this in my life. I was 100% blown away. And I knew at this moment that God had brought me to this meeting to hear this woman speak on recovery because she was, she, she was telling my story. She was talking about how she, was, how she was sober and how she was suicidal and how she wanted to kill herself. And, and it was right where I was at. And I remember sitting there just breaking down in tears. And after the meeting, I went up and I went to go talk to her, but she had this line of people. And I wanted to go talk to her and I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted her to rescue me. And so when I, when I went up to her, I asked her if, you know, like what meetings does she go to? And she told me, and so I, I stalked her. I stalked this woman. I wanted her to sponsor me. And I asked her if she would sponsor me, and she said she didn't have time. She tried to pawn me off on someone else. I said, I'm going to keep stalking you because I need what you have because I'm about to die. You know, I'm about to die. So she took me through this work. Word, she took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, word by word, line by line. 
and everywhere where it was, where it was higher higher power, which is so crazy because it's not mentioned that mu- that yeah. much in the big book. She showed me where Christ was. She showed me where where this whole book is written. It's it's all Christ based, you know, and it's so it's it's crazy how today in the rooms in the in the in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous how they don't want you to talk about Christ when that's what the whole big book was their whole Bible which is their the big book of, it's yeah. all it's Jesus's fingerprints all over that book all over the steps I can show you a a scripture for every step the first step is we you know is is we admitted we were powerless over our addictions that our lives had become unmanageable. Well, Paul said in Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I try to do what's right, and I can't, but I can't carry it out. I couldn't carry it out on my own power. Yeah. I needed God's power. Steps 1 through 12, every single one of them are about humility. We just learned about this, and we just heard a pastor talk about this on, at Sunday service, humility, being broken down in my ego. Every single step, I didn't see that. I didn't see that step three was breaking down my ego, surrendering everything over to God. There used to be this 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 bumper sticker that said, God is my co-pilot. That was my problem. God's been my co-pilot. He needs to be my pilot. He needs to be flying this plane. I have no business running my life. I have no business flying. I need to be back helping the passengers. I have no pilot's license. He needs to fly this plane. I am in for destruction. Every time Leanne tries to run her life, and she doesn't let God run her life, she doesn't let God put God first in every area. And I went through this work with this woman, word by word, line by I never got closer to God. Like, I believe 100% that God, God brought me to AA, but I believe that AA brought me closer to Jesus than ever before. And I went through this work. I, I began to understand the powerlessness in first step. I began to understand what alcoholism was. I had to get that right. I had to understand what it was and did I have that and what did it mean to be that. I understood 100% that I was and that I had to, I had to believe in God. Step four is to, is to surrender everything over to Christ, surrender everything. And then I can go into inventory. Inventory four and five are like confession. Six and seven are sanctification. Eight and nine are, are reconciliation, making amends, right? right. 10 is re, redoing all that over again. 11 is prayer and meditation. And 12 is evangelism, going back mm. out and giving what was so freely given to me. And I wasn't doing that either. I wasn't doing any of that. I all I was doing was just sitting my butt in a meeting and taking in, taking in, taking in, and not giving back, because I had nothing to give back. I wasn't shown properly how to how to do that, and how I could how I could give back all those twelve steps that were so freely given to me, and having an experience with it, not just doing it, having an experience with Jesus, unlike an experience I've ever had before, something completely different than just an experience in church because I'm an al- I was an alcoholic. Today, I don't identify as an alcoholic. I am a recovered alcoholic. I am recovered from that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body where my body, where my body was to who I am today. I'm a new creation in Christ. And what I, what I have, I've, there's never been a mistake from that day that I went through that work with that woman who is today still my sponsor, her name is Tyler Colton, that, that there's never been a mistake or a hesitation in my life, what my direction and what my path is, is that I'm supposed to be going out and helping other alcoholics and other addicts. 
and being able to share my story and let them know that it's okay, and that God can take, and that God has complete, if, just, if you just let God have complete control of your life, you could have the amazing life that I have today. I mean, my, the career that I have today, my life, my family, uh, the things that, we, that, that we're able to do, God blesses me so that I could be a blessing to other people today. I mean, this is, I, I, sometimes I just don't even ask for it, you know, and then God just like, just dumps something amazing on me. I'm like, okay, all right, who, who am I sharing this with today? Wow. It's just amazing, you know, um, but had I not listened to the Holy Spirit that day that said, go to a meeting and go listen to this woman, I would have not been in the direction that I had been in, that I am in today, and, and learned the things and had the experience that I had that I'm, that was just so that had just revolutionized and changed my life, you know, brought down those walls, brought down those walls so that I can have this amazing contact with the Holy Spirit that I have today. And your therapist said, hey, like, was your therapist a big part of that? Like, what? She, Well, said, yeah, hey. she was. Yeah. Oh, right? definitely. Yeah. God's very organized, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yes. God's super organized in how he plants people, you know, and in, in, in their, in your life so that he can direct you to where he needs you to go. Because you know, our will trumps God's will, right? Yeah. But he knows that if he could just plant this person and this person, you know, that maybe uh, uh, what will happen was the direction and the pattern of my life completely changed from possibly doing something to myself, you know, or destroying my whole family. Yeah. Right. I didn't, I didn't need alcohol to do that. I was doing it. I was doing it without alcohol and drugs because I was doing it without Jesus. I was doing it without God. I was living like an agnostic, right? Yeah. Agnosticism is just a belief in something, but there's no reliance on it, right? Yeah. Well, wasn't that what I was? I was like a present-day agnostic. Even though I claimed to be a Christian, I had no dependence on, on God. I had no contact with the Holy Spirit. Then I, then I get dumped into this church, this awakened church, where I, you know, the, for my first experience at awakened. Yeah, how did you get to awaken? So I had gone from Shadow Mountain. Well, my kids, my kids had always been in Christian schools. So that was one thing that I always made sure that they did. I always made sure that they were in Christian education. And so they were at Christian High. And at, from Christian High, they actually heard Pastor Jurgen come and speak at chapel one time. And um, I guess he wasn't supposed to talk about the, Holy, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but he did. Oh, really? And so, yeah, he never got invited back. <laughs> That's what he told us. But and I remember my kids telling me, Yeah, this this pastor came and said that you can lay hands on people and, and, and heal them. And I remember Christian is Christian High is very Baptist, so we don't they don't believe in that. You know, you give yeah. the gifts of the Holy Spirit to a Baptist is like giving a Ferrari to an eight year old. They're not gonna know what to do with it. Right. So, you know, so they didn't know the to how to answer that. And so Brooke would always ask the question after Pastor Jurgen came and spoke at temple at chapel, well, why can't we lay hands on that girl that's sick and just pray that she 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 be healed? And she would always get sent to the office and I would be like, Why is my daughter being sent to the office? It was all because of that. So because my kids were um, my kids went to, to Christian, so they would, they always led us to the churches that we would go to. So we went to the Rock, and then from the Rock we came to uh, what was it at the time C three. Yeah. And the first time that I sat in C three, um, which is now I heard, Awaken. I heard, which is now Awaken. I heard Pastor Jurgen preach on a sermon. I still remember it to this day. 
It was many, David, David ago? and Brosheba. Um, it, it was, oh my gosh, six years ago, okay. somewhere around six years ago. Yeah. And I remember sitting there and feeling the Holy Spirit, not knowing what I was saying. I grabbed my husband's hand and I said, this is a Holy Spirit-filled church. We're not going anywhere. We're staying here. And it took him and Brooke a while to like really catch on. Yeah. Because my, my oldest daughter, McKenna, and I, we, we were in. We were in. We're like, we're not going anywhere. This is where God, God planted us here for a reason. And, uh, and then now, obviously, we are, we are planted here. Oh, yeah. 100%. So, go, so this is un... So, like, I'm speechless here because just what you said, how you know you're, you're no question, you're calling why yeah. you're here to share your story your testimony and then hence you know when i saw you on stage and that's because of awaken putting you on stage right right to tell your story a, a very small five minutes of your story which yeah. is what i think it was five ten minutes at the most yeah and that was enough for me or for god to highlight you to me and be like whoa okay she's got to come on she needs to share this testimony to a lot more people yeah, I think it's the initial methamphetamine and alcohol that kind of gets everybody every time. Yeah. 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 But, you know, it just goes to show you that you can't judge a book by its right. cover. You know, and sometimes you don't know who you're sitting next to in church. Maybe that person needs help, you know, and maybe they sit next to you and they think, oh, that person would never know. You know, now people know, you know, that that my calling, you know, from that day that I feel that I was recovered you know, after being four years sober, the day that I, I totally qualify myself as a recovered alcoholic and addict is, is, is uh, the day that I, that, I, that I understood my truth and I, I understood that my calling is to always share my testimony and always be there to help the other alcoholic or addict who needs help and to do whatever I can. And I know that there's times when sometimes I'm, I'm on the phone and I'm calling McAllister and I'm calling all these detoxes and I'm just doing all this stuff just out of literally out of the move of the Holy Spirit that's doing this through me, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm finding a place for someone to get medically detoxed or I'm, I'm trying to like, you know, you know, find where someone is that, that's suicidal or, and, and, and I'm usually just on a hunt and just I, persistent you know, and I know that it's just a move of the Holy Spirit because I know that's, that's my calling is to be able to save lives. And now more than ever, now more than ever, we are not living in, in the same time as we were living in three years ago. Three years, only three. Well, fentanyl's been around say, for a while. I was going to say, get back to that. Get back to the fentanyl thing. Fentanyl's been around for, for a while. It's been around since the early 2000s, like yeah. probably like right when I first got, but it was just wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And then it started to get a little bit more prevalent, I'd say maybe eight years ago, six years ago, you started hearing a little, a little bit more bit, of yeah. it, yep. a little bit more of it. In the last two years, so when COVID hit, everything shut down, right? right? Everything shut down. Oh, except dispensaries and topless bars. Those were still open. Of course. Because those are ne necessary, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So everything shut down, including liquor meetings. Stores. Liquor, liquor stores got to stay open because Correct. that's yep. necessary too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So meetings shut down. So all of us that, you know, our community of recovered and recovering addicts and alcoholics, that shut down. 
So mm. Zoom opened up, so we were able to Zoom. But then what we noticed was for a period of time, there was really nowhere. Zoom just doesn't, Zoom was okay for a period of time. You know, but Zoom does not take the place of actually meeting one-on-one with, with your, your fellow, you know, homies. Yep. Right? So well, I noticed what was happening was they started to start reporting a lot more deaths from fentanyl. Right. And I'm thinking, like, how, who's doing all this fentanyl? Well, what's happening is fentanyl isn't just something that people are doing. They're just deciding to do. It's because methamphetamines laced with fentanyl. And the two biggest drugs in, in San Diego are meth and hard drugs are right. meth and heroin, yes. both being laced with fentanyl. Fentanyl coming from China, China coming to the cartel, the cartel bringing it over. But now we've got open borders. Yep. You know, they're just open. Yeah. And no one's checking anything. So it's really easy to get drugs. It's really easy to get, get drugs right now. The, the, the fentanyl overdoses in San Diego, just San Diego alone, prior to COVID, were about three a year. And when COVID hit, they were three a day in San Diego alone. I don't know what, the, what it is today, but this was like about seven months ago I heard this statistic. There was like three a day of dying, just San Diego County, yep. San Diego alone. So we're dealing with a different thing. This is different now. Like if somebody says, if somebody goes out and relapses, it's Russian roulette today. Yes. We're dealing with something different. Where I'm dealing with something I've never experienced. A lot of people that's got, you know, I got 17 years, almost 17 years clean and sober. Like we don't know what fentanyl is. Well, I don't even know what a what a what a craft beer tastes like, but 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 that's another but you know, there's some things that we've never experienced, so we don't know what we're dealing with. Just recently we had uh, one, uh, a guy that we found God just brought me to him. He'd been MIA for a period of time. He was at our church. He'd been MIA. He went back out and um, found out he was um, not doing heroin anymore, but he was doing straight fentanyl. Found him. Literally, I've, we found out that he was still alive. I'm like, where is he? He goes, he's somewhere off, off in El Cajon. I went and looked in my car, couldn't find him, got my whole church to pray, went on the group. He said, everyone, we need to find him. He's still alive. They started praying. Five minutes later, his dad calls me. We got my son. Within 24 hours, God made it possible for us to get him into medical detox. And he's medically detoxed. He's got like close to two months right now. But when he talked to me about fentanyl, I asked him, I go, what is this? He goes, with heroin, when you go out and you do heroin, you're always chasing that same high. Yeah. With fentanyl, it's the same high every, every time. time. And it's so highly addictive, but it also kills the amount that they're putting in even pill form. I mean, it will kill you. It has been. It's been killing people nationwide. I don't even know what the numbers are, but we the real pandemic, the real is, is fentanyl. It's not covid. It's fentanyl. Yeah. And nobody's saying anything about it. CNN doesn't have a ticker, a fentanyl ticker like they did for covid. Why don't they put a fentanyl ticker up there? Because maybe somebody would do something about it, or maybe they just don't want anyone doing anything about it. But literally, this is an epidemic right now. This is, this is, it, it is, it, it's horrific how many people I've lost in the last two years, how many friends I've known who have died because they went back out and drank. They went back out and drank, but then that drink, drink that drink left, led, led, to, led to meth and yeah. then they died. That drink led to heroin and they died. That smoking pot led to, whatever and then they died 
and it's happening every single yeah. day right now. Yeah, this fentanyl thing is is because it's getting into the schools, young kids. It's becoming a major, major thing here. Oh, it's it's major. It's hor- it's horrific what we're seeing just in the rooms, the twelve step rooms, secular rooms. You know, we're hearing on a daily basis of how many people are just dying. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and again, the real pandemic is that opioids, the 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 actual prescription drugs in this country right now are just—it's ridiculous. It's that's the real epidemic. That's a real epidemic, and because it's so addictive. Yeah. So doing, you know, just doing, um, you know, coke or meth, whatever. But once it's laced with fentanyl, that's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, game over. I now am sponsoring girls that went back out three years ago on drinking and then meth, and now I'm dealing with fentanyl. Now they're, you know, they're in detox. They're on Suboxone because they have to be on Suboxone because they have to detox off something. Are, are you a part of the Waken uh, Recovery as well? I lead Awaken Recovery at the El Cajon campus. You do? Yes, my husband and I do. And give me something about Brian. How's Brian been throughout this whole journey? Look, give me. Brian is a saint. <laughs> My husband is for someone to put up with me. I compare it to um, what? What was that show? Uh, Forrest Gump. You know how amazing Forrest was. How good-hearted he was and yeah. loving. I'm Jenny. Yeah, he's yeah. Forrest Gump. <laughs> Seriously, the the man is a saint. He has worked with so many people in on the other aspect of things, on those who are the Al-Anons, those who are the enablers, those who are the co- ones who are codependent on the one who is dependent. So he's, um, he has an amazing program. Um, during that time that I told you, our four years, you know, obviously I wasn't working a program and neither was he. And then when I found this woman who took me through the work, she also found someone to help take him through the work for what he deals with. Yes. See, he didn't think he had a problem. He's like, she's the problem. I'm here for her. And then someone said, no, let's figure out what your problem is. And so he was able to, to, to go through the same 12 steps, but yeah. for what he... You know, for 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 codependency or for um, love addiction or whatever you want to call it, you know, Al-Anon issues. Yep. So, and he's been able to pass that on to other people. So it's a great mix for the two of us because not everybody that comes into Awaken Recovery, Awaken Recovery isn't just for substance abusers, obviously. Right. Um, although the El Cajon campus how we have the majority are substance abusers but we have a lot of people that come in that are family members of the substance abuser that's why it's really great to come to awaken recovery with your significant other you know uh your your husband your wife you know and and if you are that that person on the other end we have someone there and a way to help you too right and so okay so we're, let's let's land the plane and finish with this. Anybody that's watching right now that's either going through addiction, let's say they're going through, or, or they're 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 maybe in denial. What is it? Is it a denial thing? Like oh, sure. do they know they're in it and they're just like yeah. Or let's say they have a family member. What, what do yeah. they do? What's the first thing they do from right now at this point? Well, the first thing you have to do is they you have to reach out, out they- to somebody. Yeah, you have to reach out, and I would say, come Sunday night at 7 p.m. to the El Cajon campus, or go Tuesday night, 7 p.m. to the Balboa campus, or go Monday night, 
to the San Marcos campus. We have awakened recovery at all those campuses on all those evenings. But if if you can't wait, you can contact um, AA Hotline, um, Alcoholics Anonymous. Just call call the hotline. They'll help direct you to at least a meeting to get you somewhere where people are clean and sober, where you can get help. But um, I highly recommend also reaching out to a Christ-based recovery. That was going to be my next question. People have been going through the program. It's not sticking. It's not working. Right. What about them? Yeah, definitely come to a... That's why I mentioned those three times and those three days is try to reach out to to awaken recovery and 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 meet meet us, you know. And can I give my phone number out? Uh, it's going to be on. It's going to be all over your um, stuff. But okay. Yeah, if you want to give it out, you can give it yeah, out. Yeah. So if if you are feeling like you need help and you're feeling like you need someone to talk to, like you're not sure if you have an addiction problem, you're not sure if you have an alcohol problem, call my number six one nine. Three six eight nine nine four four. Send me a text. Six one nine three six eight nine nine four four. Text me first, and then we'll call. And then I'll know that you, you you reached out from from this podcast. But if you if you have questions, if you are concerned, uh, if you uh, feel like you're lost or you just don't know where to go, send me a text. I wonder if my phone's going to blow up. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's it's not okay. Live. It's not live. Okay. Send me a text and <laughs> I will, um, I will uh, be more than happy to call you back and we can chat. And, and single guy, she's married. Don't forget that. Yeah. This I, isn't a hookup line now. <laughs> no. This is a recovery line. <laughs> We're going to have to fight him off. Yeah. And, and typically what we do too, like, so if there's a guy, you know, I usually don't sponsor guys. Um, but if there is a guy, we'll, we'll direct you to the right, to the right male version yeah. of what you're dealing with for sure. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. So Leanne, this has been incredible. I mean, your story is unreal and I loved watching you share it because you just, you started to light up at the end and your passion came through of how much you care and how much you genuinely are, are in your calling now of why you're, why God put you here. You're a very yeah. special human being. Uh, God definitely had a plan with you. Uh, he didn't, he didn't want to see you go. That's for sure. So he made sure, as you said, he's got a, he's very um, strategic and yeah. very planned out and knew he put certain people in your life um, to make sure that you made it through so that you can come out the other side and do this amazing work that you're doing now. And then therein lies, then he put me in your life and you're in mine so that we can get this story out there even more um, because even if we can change one person's life that watches this or listens to it or has a family member then we've done our job here today yeah. so Leanne I thank you so much it's been an honor I really appreciate you. you being completely vulnerable and transparent and uh, thank you so much for sharing your story Leanne Yarber Real Deal Talk that's a wrap baby uh, yeah.